0: Well, with that, it's a privilege to introduce our next speaker, a colleague at the Cato Institute. Uh, David Bowes is a very important figure to Cato. He's the person who oversees all the policy work. Uh, He's on the policy committee and the management committee and all kinds of other committees. But he's the person who makes sure that everything that Cato produces reaches the standards appropriate for a first-class organization. He's also a serious writer and scholar in his own right. His book, Libertarianism, a Primer, I highly recommend. I think it is the best overview of classical liberal or libertarian thought available in the English language. His other books, The Libertarian Reader and the many books that he's edited are serious contributions to the scholarship and the philosophy of liberty. He's also regularly on television and radio, and he has a sharp wit, and a very, very sharp eye. He can spot a typo at 60 paces. (laughs) He just open up the page, and he can see them uh, before anyone else. So please join me in welcoming David Boggs.
1: Thank you, Tom. Um, I learned everything I know about libertarianism from Tom Palmer, so if you're reading libertarianism a primer you know uh, where I got everything. Copy editing seems to be a declining skill in America. Uh, It is true that I can spot a typo at 60 paces, although it's very depressing to pick up a book or a paper that I thought I did look at and discover something there, but I do see a lot of them. Yesterday I saw an interesting one. Um, Somehow I I got sent a link and I found myself on the blog of the Christian Broadcasting Network uh, blog, CBN blog, whatever it was called, and there was a discussion there of Ted Cruz's victory and it was describing David Dewhurst, the guy Ted Cruz beat, as being sort of like Charlie Crist, but they misspelled Crist. And remember, this is the Christian Broadcasting Network website. They spelled Charlie Christ C-H-R-I-S-T. I, I thought that was a pretty strange typo. So I said something about it on Facebook thinking, well, you know, if they haven't noticed it by now, they will notice it now. Twelve hours later, still not there. I guess copy editors don't go to the Christian Broadcasting Network website. And, Nobody there looks back once they've moved on. Um, So copy editing is a lost art, unfortunately, but it's one we try to keep alive at Cato because it's part of quality control. And if you're promoting radical ideas, we think you ought to do it by living up to the highest standards of research and footnoting and scholarship and the tone you take and the design of the books and the copy editing. So all of that is important to producing a professional product that people will take seriously as they start to explore the ideas. But that's all I wanna say about copy editing and, and the specific work we do at Cato. Let me talk some about freedom. Freedom has been under assault in America for a good decade, anyway. It's been a bad decade for liberty and constitutional rights. Not so good during the Bush years, and then right after Bush got reelected from like 2005 on, right through 2008, all the energy in American politics was get Bush out, get the Republicans out. We don't want to remember these people were around. And it was pretty successful. They got Bush out. They swept Obama in and he came in on such a wave of good feeling, a wave of enthusiasm. He had extremely high approval ratings. Even people who didn't vote for him in that post-election period kind of felt good that a barrier in America had been broken and that we could say more fully than we could before any little boy in America can grow up to be president. Opportunity is unlimited in America. And people liked that even if they had not voted for Barack Obama. So he comes in on this wave of enthusiasm and one of the first things he uses his political capital for is to pass the biggest economic stimulus bill in history within a month. And between the financial crisis and the Obama victory and then the stimulus vote, pundits were starting to declare the end of the Reagan revolution, the end of libertarianism. I didn't even know libertarianism had begun and they were declaring the end of libertarianism, even the end of American capitalism, and it was a pretty depressing period. Uh, There were uh, uh, covers of Time and Newsweek saying the New New Deal and we're all socialists now. It was a depressing time to be a libertarian, and then something changed. Suddenly, around February 2009, Obama's barely in office, suddenly, All the energy switches to the anti-Obama side, the, the Tea Party side and the constitutionalist side. We didn't even know there was a constitutionalist side in America and suddenly there was one. It might even have started with the Cato Institute's full page ads against the stimulus in all of America's largest newspapers. Those got a lot of attention and I think one reason is They sent a signal to small government supporters that after eight years of slumbering through the Bush administration and six months of just pure horror during the financial crisis, we're back, we're off the canvas, we're fighting back now. And people noticed that and they felt rallied and inspired by that. And they didn't stop the stimulus, but they did revive the small government movement. And a couple of weeks later, Rick Santelli popped up on CNBC calling for a tea party, and tea parties started popping up everywhere, and suddenly all the energy in American politics was in a different place. And there was a journalist later that year, end of the year, I guess, who wrote, The Philosophical Casualty of the Great Recession was supposed to be libertarianism, but signs to the contrary are thriving. Americans are increasingly opposed to activist government programs. The most significant social movement of 2009, the Tea Party protests, grew out of that opposition. The Obama administration brought with it ambitions of a resurgence of FDR and LBJ's active state liberalism, and with it, Obama has revived the enduring American challenge to the state, and that was one of the products of the Obama election and the stimulus and the early bills was the revival of this movement for small government. Sales of Atlas Shrugged were soaring. Sales of the road to serfdom were soaring. On October 11, 2009, the Cato Institute's pocket constitution made the Washington Post bestseller list. We give a lot of them away. We give a lot of them away, but we sell some of them too. And it made the best seller list, and then sales went even higher in 2010. And polls that year showed a lot of opposition to activist government, to the healthcare in particular, and to Democrats running for re-election in 2010. There was a poll taken, it's taken regularly, There was a poll taken in 2010 that asked people, on the whole, would you prefer a smaller government with fewer services or a larger government with more services? And the results they found in 2010 were 58 to 38 in favor of smaller government. And this was a Washington Post poll, and the Post pointed out support for smaller government in that question has risen 20 points since the day Obama clinched the Democratic nomination in 2008. Now, there's a problem with that question, and I pay attention to this question. I think it's an important polling question. There's a problem with that question. It tells you the benefit, in theory, of larger government, that you get more services. It doesn't tell you the cost of larger government. So there are some pollsters, notably Rasmussen, who ask a different question. They ask, On the whole, would you prefer a smaller government with fewer services and lower taxes or a more active government, which is actually a softer way of putting it, they don't say bigger or larger government, just a more active government with more services and higher taxes? When you ask the question that way, you don't get 58 to 38, you get 66 to 22. When people are reminded that the cost of more government services is higher taxes, by three to one, they prefer smaller government with fewer services and lower taxes. That same year, a Gallup poll found that 57% of Americans said the government is trying to do too many things that should be left to businesses and individuals. And the interesting thing, about that number 57%. It seems kinda low to me. You would think it would be a lot higher than that. But Gallup reported it's the highest that number has been since October 1994. Now imagine being a Democratic incumbent and reading that sentence in 2010. Hostility to big government is at its highest level since 1994. Well, of course, That was, in fact, a precursor of what was going to happen in the election. We had the 2010 election. It was called the Tea Party election. A lot of Democratic incumbents were swept away. A lot of Republicans were elected. I'm not a Republican. I don't cheer for Republican victories. There was some evidence that a lot of the Republicans running in 2010, Rand Paul and Pat Toomey and a lot of House members, were actually interested in limiting government and cutting spending and restoring the Constitution. You know, in 2010, I'd never seen this before. I'm not sure I ever checked, but then why would I? In 2010, four of the Tea Party freshmen were actually contributors to the Cato Institute. Never seen something like that happen before. So we hope for some good results, obviously, given the nature of the American system. Even if the House of Representatives wanted to do good things, and they wanted to do a few good things, they couldn't make very many of them happen. Um, I did an interview with uh, Associated Press TV yesterday, and they wanted to talk about this Congress and what has it accomplished and what has it failed to accomplish. Of course, I'm trying to make the point that you know, you shouldn't measure how good a Congress is by how many laws it passes, how much it spends, how many new programs it sets up. And by that standard, this Congress has done a lot less damage than the previous Congress. Now, it's still true though, that spending continues to rage out of control, that entitlements are still there, threatening to make us insolvent, and this Congress hasn't actually done anything about that. And they deserve criticism for that. So what are the polls saying now? Well, that question about government is trying to do too many things that had hit its highest point at 57%, now it's at 61%, highest point ever, not just since 1994. 72% of Americans say the individual mandate is unconstitutional. This poll was taken after the Supreme Court said, well, it's not exactly constitutional, but you can do it anyway. There's a lot of popular sentiment against what the government is doing. And it's not just health care and debt. Two of the other issues that I've been watching, the right to marry and the right to smoke, are both doing much better in the polls than they were before without any leadership from President Obama or the liberal Democrats or anything. You know, I was given an opportunity to meet with the new drug czar early in the Obama administration. And after he explained what he planned to do, which sounded pretty much exactly like what they'd always been doing to me, he opened it up to this group of about 10 think tank scholars and said, you know, does anyone have any comments? And I looked around, nobody else did, so I raised my hand. And let me give you a tip, if you're ever in a place, you're hearing a politician speak or anything, and you have a tough question you'd like to ask, be the first one to raise your hand. Because a lot of people don't like to be the first one to raise their hand, but after the first question, a lot of hands will go up. So your best shot at getting called on is asking that first question. So I look around, nobody else, I have a question. What's your question? I said, well, it occurs to me, that our last three presidents all admit that they have used drugs in their youth. Now I'm guessing that Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama do not think they should have been arrested for using drugs. They don't think the country would be better off if they had been arrested for using drugs. I didn't tell the drug czar, but I'll mention to you that it's not entirely clear to me that the country wouldn't be better off if Bill Clinton, (laughs) George Bush, and Barack Obama had all been arrested in their youth. But I didn't say that there. So I just want to ask you, Mr. Czar, how can the president look himself in the mirror every morning knowing that this year he will arrest a million people for doing what he did? And then, because I didn't really think I was going to get an answer, I suggested two or three things they could do to moderate the deleterious effects of the drug war. And he said, OK, that's an interesting perspective. Anyone else? And (laughs) (laughs) And then they went around. And I swear, the liberals and the conservatives, you could not, if you closed your eyes, you wouldn't have known who around the table was from a liberal think tank and who was from a conservative think tank none of them focused on the main issue of should you arrest people for what they smoke, but more than half of the American people now say you shouldn't arrest people for what they smoke, so I'm hoping there'll be some progress on that. Now I'm talking about all these polling numbers that might be discouraging to Democrats, and I might note that so far, polls do not show that people wanna call themselves Republicans again, And they're still pretty skeptical of Mitt Romney and the Republican Party. And there's very good reason for that. Republicans gave us a terrible eight years. From the first trillion dollar increase in spending during one president's term, to the first trillion dollar deficit, along with federal takeovers of education and marriage, and the biggest expansion of entitlements in 40 years, and two endless wars, And all of that before the disastrous last hundred days of bailouts, takeovers, and soaring deficits. No wonder people are not sure they want to give the Republicans control of the government again. But for us, that's all politics. That's all I want to say about politics. Political attitudes can change, they will change. What's important to us is to develop and promote the principles of liberty and limited government. And that job is up to us because we do not have political leadership in this country that is developing and promoting and advancing the ideas of liberty. On one issue or another, one candidate or party may be better than another. But there are very few people in Washington who believe in individual rights, who believe in the actual constitution, It's not even clear that there are very many people on the Supreme Court of the United States who believe that the Constitution is the law. You know, it's not just a good idea, it actually is the law. And yet, we have a lot of members of the Supreme Court who judge in a literally lawless manner. They don't think about law. They may think about what's a good public policy. Is it, they might ask at some point, is it a good idea to arrest a million people a year for smoking pot? They might say, is it a good idea to guarantee everyone health care? What they don't often enough say is, is it the law? Is it legitimate under the Constitution? So because there's not that kind of leadership, it is up to us, it is up to the freedom movement to advance those ideas. And I think it's important, if we want to do that, to talk first about what it is we stand for. And I know you've heard a lot this week about what it is, both policy and and philosophically, what it is that we stand for. But I just want to take a moment to say what I think we stand for. I've always liked the phrase that Adam Smith used, the simple system of natural liberty. Liberty is natural it is letting people alone. It is letting people do what they will as long as they abide by a very few specific rules. And sometimes I say they're rules that you learned in kindergarten. Don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. And once you have those simple rules, natural liberty is what occurs, the simple system of natural liberty, that's what we're for. Now, if you speak to a libertarian philosopher, he might come up with a more specific description. He might say, for instance, the fundamental rule is the rule of non-aggression. No one has the right to initiate aggression against the person or property of anyone else. And I agree with that. In fact, sometimes I say, I hold that truth to be self-evident. I hold this truth to be self-evident, that it is wrong to initiate the use of force against people who have not used force themselves. But the point is, what we're about is not just utilitarianism, not just better outcomes. If you look at the map of the two Koreas at night, if you look at the automobiles produced in East Germany and West Germany, If you look at the prosperity of the United States versus the poverty of Russia, then you can see that free markets and the rule of law produce better outcomes for people, and that's important. But it's not the fundamentally important thing. What we are about is not just economics, not just good consequences, but freedom and limited government. And we can have debates about what monetary policy should be, what tax policy should be, what education policy should be. Sometimes we have those debates within the Cato Institute. What should we say about these policy areas? And sometimes we have them with other groups in the freedom movement. We say you're wrong on this education policy. That's not the education policy that moves us toward freedom. As long as we start out understanding that our commitment is to freedom and limited government, we've got the basics right, and we can argue about the building blocks beyond that. Many of you probably used to watch Robert Novak on CNN and other television networks. I used to read him in the Washington Post twice a week for many years. Um, Just before he died, he wrote an autobiography. And I was fortunate enough to go to a small lunch where he talked about his autobiography. And one of the things I remember he said was, whenever I give a commencement address, which is about 1% of the time that liberal pundits on CNN give commencement addresses, but on those rare times, when I give a commencement address, one of the things I tell students is always love your country, but never trust your government. That's a good rule for people to keep in mind, too. Now, there are people in Washington, I was just reading a book by one of them, who say it cannot be true that you should love your country and hate your government or even mistrust your government. You can't have patriotism that way. Well, I think you can, and I think one of the fundamental differences we have with some people like that is whether we think the state is the essence of who we are as a society, as a people, or whether it is not. And one of the things we understand is, the government is not us. The government is an entity. It is an entity with a monopoly on the use of force. It is an entity with its own interests. But it is not simply us acting in some Rousseauian collective sense. So that's a lesson that we have to continually relearn. And if you read the newspapers, you see that every day we have to relearn it and reteach it. On the 4th of July, in the New York Times, a writer named Kurt Anderson complained, and this was the New York Times view of, you know, the way to celebrate the 4th of July. Kurt Anderson complained at length that there's too much freedom in modern America. He wrote, for hippies and bohemians, as for business people and investors, extreme individualism has been triumphant. And he reminisced about his idyllic childhood back in, I guess, the 60s, maybe the 70s, when he said greed, as well as homosexuality, was a love that dared not speak its name. And then he mentioned what the left and right respectively love and hate are mostly flip sides of the same libertarian coin minted around 1967. Thanks to the 60s, we are all shamelessly selfish. Well, he calls it selfish. We call it self-reliance, minding your own business, staying out of unnecessary wars, and raising everybody's standard of living by pursuing your own interest and your own profit. In his wonderful book, Radicals for Capitalism, The History of the Libertarian Movement, Brian Doherty advances two ideas that might seem contradictory. First, he says, libertarian ideas are radical. They go to the root. They ask the fundamental questions. Second, he says, these ideas are deeply rooted in Western civilization, which now runs on approximately libertarian principles. Now, that's an interesting challenge. Can you believe these are the most radical ideas in the political sphere and they are deeply rooted in Western civilization which now runs on those principles? And I think you can. I think you can say these ideas of individualism, individual autonomy, individual rights, civil society, markets, the rule of law, the bringing of power under the rule of law, these are Radical ideas, perhaps the most radical ideas in human history since, after all, human history started with people taking what they could get and hitting people over the head. These ideas, a few centuries ago, revolutionized the world. Now, as he said, they're deeply rooted in Western civilization. They go back a long time. In Libertarianism a Primer and in many deeper books, the roots of these ideas in Judeo-Christianity, in the Greek and the Roman and the German roots of Western civilization, you can trace the beginnings of these ideas. But a couple hundred years ago, when they congealed into liberalism, they changed the world. They revolutionized first Northern Europe, and then the American colonies, and then most of Europe, and increasingly much of the world. And libertarians, have been involved in that struggle, the struggle for liberal values, all that time. And that is a record to be proud of. We have been fighting ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power for many centuries. That is a record to be proud of and a record to build on. The New York Times did a review of Brian Daugherty's book and they tried to nitpick everything in it And I wrote a response going through some of them. What did they come up with? They said, he doesn't talk about all the libertarians who haven't had much respect for the rights of others. Really, who are those? Well, how about Ayn Rand? She testified before the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee about communists in Hollywood. Well, that is rich coming from a newspaper that won a Pulitzer Prize for Walter Durante's lies about Stalin's terror famine in Ukraine and where Herbert Matthews was the press agent who helped Fidel Castro come to power in Cuba. For them to criticize one libertarian testifying before HUAC, and what did she say? She said, there are communist writers in Hollywood and they put communist ideas in movies and they're not always as obvious as you might think they would be and you should not censor them. That's not the way you deal with bad ideas. That's what she said. Now the New York Times also said Murray Rothbard supported Strom Thurmond in 1948 for president when he was 22. Okay, that is embarrassing. (laughs) And all those whose friends and forebears did not support the pro-Soviet candidate Henry Wallace that year are entitled to criticize. That would not include most of the people at the New York Times. And then they said... And Milton Friedman was an advisor to the Chilean dictator, Augusto Pinochet. Well, yes, that's true. He spent 45 minutes with him once, and I think he wrote him a letter also. He spent a lot more time than that with the dictators of China, giving them advice on how to improve their economy. Now, what would the Times have Milton Friedman do when a dictator asks for advice on reducing the misery under which his people suffer? Should he say, no, I prefer that your people continue to suffer under the misery of inflation and stagnant uh, economies? I don't think so. He suggested you could improve the lives of the people of Chile if you did these things, and that's what he did. And in fact, this one military junta did take a lot of his advice, and Chile became the fastest growing, most prosperous economy in Latin America. And then the New York Times said in this review of Brian Doherty, and there was a guy who was an anti-Semite. And as I wrote in my response, despite having spent 30 years in the libertarian movement and despite having read this book, I had never heard the name of the anti-Semite that he mentioned. So I went back, used the index, flipped through the book, found the name of the guy. Oh, yes, it's this guy of whom Leonard Reed, one of the real founding fathers of libertarianism, Leonard Reed said, stay away from this guy, he's an anti-Semite. So, okay, yeah, there was an anti-Semite somewhere around the libertarian movement, and one of the leaders said, you should stay away from this guy. So, if that is the sum total of embarrassing libertarian moments, it's a pretty darn good record over 70 years or so modern liberals have to deal with the fact, not an embarrassing fact, but a shameful one, that many of their forebears supported Stalin and the Communist Party. As for conservatives, I could mention their long resistance to liberty and equality under the law for blacks, women, and gays, but instead I'll just say George W. Bush and the Iraq War. In 70 years, libertarians have done nothing that remotely compares to expressing support for limited constitutional government while also supporting Bush, his disastrous war, and his accumulation of unaccountable, unprecedented presidential power. That is a record to be proud of and a record to continue fighting for. And I want to send you all away from here inspired to go and fight for freedom, and sometimes the task of doing that seems overwhelming. But let me take a moment to tell you about some people who took on a far more terrible state than our own. This story starts about 30 years ago, and I always wonder, for the youngest people in the audience, how much of the backstory do I need to tell? Once upon a time, The world was divided by an iron curtain into a more or less free world and a completely unfree world, the world of the Soviet Union and communist China. And in 1978, as part of the Cold War, the United States decided it should place nuclear weapons in Europe. And understandably, the communists in Central Europe and Eastern Europe didn't like this idea And the East German communists encouraged their people to protest. They were very big on protest in East Germany. If you wanted to come out and protest against the United States, you could do that. So they wanted to encourage protests, and people did come out, and they marched. No nuclear weapons in Europe. But some of these people started talking about peace and what it meant, and A small peace movement grew up based in the remaining Protestant churches, which were attended mostly by old women. But there were a few Protestant churches, Lutheran churches still there. And some people started going to these churches and praying for peace. And they prayed against nuclear weapons in Europe. But they also started praying against mandatory army service in East Germany and against military classes that their children had to attend in grade school. And that was not what the East German government had in mind, and they started watching and persecuting these activists. But there was still a little bit of protection for the church. They would would not go inside the church to break these things up. And over the next few years, people started organizing Monday evening prayers for peace at St. Nicholas Church, Nikolai Kirka in Leipzig, the second largest city in East Germany, the church where Martin Luther once preached against power and corruption and autocracy. And under constant pressure from the East German state, attendance shrank to fewer than 10 regulars by the mid-1980s, but it was the only place You could express any dissent, and slowly attendance started to grow. And then Gorbachev's reforms gave people some optimism that maybe there was going to be some space and some openness. And so people were attending the Monday evening peace prayers. By 1989, the agents of the Stasi were monitoring nearly 200 separate citizens groups. Also, the regime never managed to block West German television broadcasts, so young people wanted the lives they saw on television from the West. In 1987, hundreds of teens gathered in Berlin chanting, the wall must go, because they wanted to attend a David Bowie concert. American conservatives who used to complain about sex drugs and rock and roll didn't realize that rock and roll might end up having more influence on the other side of the Iron Curtain than it did here. So on May 7th, 1989, they had local elections in East Germany. Now we in the West knew that elections in the communist countries were a complete farce. 99% of the people turned out to vote and 99% of them voted for the communist party and In East Germany, people were told that's that's what an election is. That's what happened. We knew it was fraudulent, but a lot of them maybe didn't. And so coming out of these churches, some people said, let's be election observers. We'll volunteer to go out and, and watch the voting, and we'll come back to the church at night and compare the results. And they discovered there appeared to have been fraud. Not that many people voted. Some people said they didn't vote for the Communist Party. So they they became aware there's something wrong here. And then the summer of 1989, the crackdown in Tiananmen Square was a reminder to people in Germany of what communist states can do when they're provoked. And there was no precedent for a peaceful transfer of power in the communist world. And the minister of the Nikolai Kirko, looking back on this a few years later, said it wasn't imaginable that the communist state would end. And fear of a Chinese solution grew among people, a crackdown. But Gorbachev continued to send signals that the Soviet Union would no longer intervene in domestic politics in their client states. And so maybe there was some space. And that summer, 1989, Hungary relaxed its border restrictions in the summer. They allowed you to cross from Hungary to Austria. And thousands of Germans who were vacationing in Hungary, because it was also behind the Iron Curtain, discovered you could drive across the border to Austria, a German-speaking country where you could say anything you wanted to. Other East Germans went to Prague, and somehow picked Prague as the place where they would climb over the fence of the West German embassy, putting themselves legally onto West German territory. And after a summer break, all this stuff is going on, people are thinking, instead of 10 people or 100 people, thousands of people showed up at the Nikolai Kirka on Monday, September 4th, 1989. And I must say, I was around, I was listening, watching the TV. We didn't know what was happening. We knew, we read on page 13 that there were these protests going on in the church in Germany. We knew that the Hungarian border had been opened. It, I can remember, it was a story this big. Um, but we didn't know what was about to happen. Thousands of people showed up. A few days later, in front of Western TV cameras that had come to Leipzig for a trade show, young protesters unfurled a banner demanding freedom of travel. The minister remembers that the Stasi ripped it down and tackled the kids. And millions of East Germans saw that on West German TV. And a week later, in the St. Nicholas Church, the crowd doubled. And in response to the people leaving through Hungary and Prague, these people chanted, Wir bleiben hier, we're staying here. Monday demonstrations began to be held at Lutheran churches all across East Germany. The next Monday night, 15,000 people marched in Leipzig. They were pouring out of the church and marching around the ring road that circles the inner city of Leipzig. They were carrying candles, marching for peace. And on October 9th, the police knew things were getting bigger and they prepared to deal with 20,000 protesters, unprecedented, in the Soviet empire. But as the crowd poured out of the church, and I've been in that church, There weren't very many people inside the church, so when they say the crowd poured out of the church, they mean and out of all the squares nearby. As the crowd poured out of the church and began to march around the ring road, more than 70,000 Leipzigers joined this demonstration and the minister looking back on it recalls, this was 70,000 people who didn't know if they'd come home intact or see their families Again, it was a heroic and enormous act of moral courage and slowly the crowd began walking around Leipzig's Ring Road and the police looked for orders and they looked to their captains and the captains looked to the telephone and no orders came and the police backed off. They let the people march and that was the end of communism in East Germany, although nobody knew it that night. The next week on October 16th, 150,000 people marched. The week after that, it was 300,000 as people came from all over East Germany to march in Leipzig. And the party leadership fell, not the party state, but the leaders of the party fell. They no longer had support. And on Saturday, November 4th, More than 500,000 people marched, not in Leipzig, but in East Berlin. And five days later, the Berlin Wall, the wall that was a permanent part of my childhood and young adulthood, the wall built to keep people in, was opened, sort of by accident, because they didn't realize what was going on. And millions of people were suddenly, amazingly free. And a few years later, I had the honor to meet Wolfgang Tiefensee, who had been active in those protests, who had been the mayor of Leipzig and was by then a member of the German cabinet. He told me he'd been mayor of Leipzig and I said to him, were you involved in the protests? And he said, oh yes, from September 1989, and I hope you know what the Bible tells us, we walked seven times around the city And then the wall came down seven times from September until November 1989. And the minister of an East Berlin church who was involved in this whole process looks back on the events and says, no outside force could have done this. That would have meant war. What happened was a self-liberation. Soft water breaks the hardest stone. There is no army, no state, no government program that is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. But it's up to people to make the idea's time come. I was asked once by some skeptics of libertarianism what the most important libertarian accomplishment ever was. And I thought for a moment and said, the abolition of slavery. OK, they said, what else? I thought the abolition of slavery was pretty good. (laughs) But they said, name another one. So I thought a little more carefully and said, bringing power under the rule of law, that is the fundamental liberal or libertarian accomplishment. It was a revolutionary achievement. It revolutionized the world, but it remains incomplete. It's what the protesters in 1989 fought for, It's what Mao Yuxi and Chen Guangcheng and thousands of other Chinese protesters fight for today. It is what we fight for. Thank you for being part of that historic and ongoing struggle. Thank you and good night.